In the 2020 election, disinformation is everywhere. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Wild rumors, lies, and disinformation about Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden are spreading like wildfire in South Florida's Latino communities via WhatsApp, Facebook, and Spanish-language media. The QAnon conspiracy theory, meanwhile, is seeping into mainstream politics. And doctored videos of politicians get millions of views on social media. Journalists and fact-checkers debunk claims again and again, but nothing seems to stop the flow of falsehoods. And in Florida, where elections are decided by close margins, these lies and conspiracy theories could swing the outcome. So is there a way to stop this information from spreading? And what can you do to protect yourself? Joining me today are Daniel Funky, a reporter for PolitiFact. His recent story in the Tampa Bay Times looked at how QAnon is showing up in the 2020 presidential race in Florida. And also joining us is Sabrina Rodriguez, a reporter at Politico, who's looked at the spread of disinformation in South Florida's Latino communities. Daniel and Sabrina, welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Daniel, I'll start with you. You know, we could probably spend the, the whole 30 minutes of the show talking about QAnon, but just to start, give us a brief summary of what QAnon is and, and how it's spread so quickly in uh, America political discourse? So at its core, uh, QAnon is a baseless conspiracy theory. Um, it has seeds in the 2016 election. Um, so in 2016, a conspiracy theory that alleged former Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton and her campaign uh, were running a pedophile child sex ring in the basement of Washington, D.C., pizza parlor went viral. Um, it is one of the most notorious moments from the past election and also um, gave rise to conspiracy theories about uh, child sex trafficking and their links to um, the Democratic Party. So QAnon is an outgrowth of that conspiracy theory. Um, it's been around since 2017. And it basically says uh, falsely that uh, President Donald Trump is behind the scenes fighting with military officials to uh, bring democratic uh, operatives and politicians to justice for um, being Satan-worshipping uh, pedophiles, essentially. Again, there's no evidence to support any of this stuff, but it has taken off uh, widely since 2017. Started uh, in fringe communities on internet forums like 4chan and 8kun. Um, again, these are fringe forums, and they slowly seeped into Facebook and Twitter and more mainstream social media uh, platforms. And recently, over the past summer, we've seen um, several congressional candidates uh, openly support this conspiracy theory. So um, certainly, its mainstreaming was helped along by social media platforms and the way that they reward viral information. Um, but I think there's also an interesting tale here about how Americans are obsessed with conspiracy theories in a certain way. You mentioned the congressional candidates, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. But I want to go back to this idea about um, children. And there were there were Save the Children rallies around the country last month. Uh, you and uh, Steve Contorno of the Tampa Bay Times covered uh, one of these rallies in Lakeland, and it, it ended up being more of, of a QAnon type of event. What happened there? Yeah, so my, my colleague Steve Contorno at the Times went to the rally in Lakeland uh, just to get a scene setter. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Save Our Children and Save the Children are two um, hashtags that kind of went viral in late July, early August. And they were paired with claims about child sex trafficking, um, human trafficking in general. Some of these were very vague claims, didn't contain much fact there. Um, some of them were very targeted and specific 
accusing you know people like Joe Biden of uh, child sex trafficking baselessly. Um, yeah, and around uh, mid-August or so, we saw several in-person rallies planned across the country. Uh, there were several hundred of these rallies, according to some research from First Draft, which is a nonprofit that studies mis and disinformation. And not everyone at these Save the Children, Save Our Children rallies were QAnon conspiracy theory believers. Um, some of them were simply attending because they thought that child sex trafficking and human trafficking were um, justifiably horrible crimes, right? And they wanted to come out and protest against those crimes. Um, but it's undeniable that uh, these rallies and protests were organized on Facebook and groups. And many of these organizers were believers of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Um, and QAnon, according to several experts and researchers who study QAnon, um, have observed over the past several months how some of its most ardent supporters are trying to pivot and reframe the conspiracy theory for a broader audience and saying something like save the children, save our children is much more appealing to people that might not necessarily buy into the satanic pedophile cabal, <laughs> which is central to QAnon, essentially. Sabrina, your recent story in Politico with Mark Caputo looked at some of the conspiracy theories, including some QAnon-related things that are uh, that are spreading in the in the different uh, Latin American communities in South Florida. And there are kind of two prongs to it because there's the social media aspect, especially the use of WhatsApp, but there's also uh, the rise of some conservative media, Spanish language uh, conservative media outlets in South Florida. It's also propagating some of these stories. How do those two kind of feed into each other? Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere is, the, is really what my conclusion was after the story. And it's, you know, South Florida, obviously, we know many Latinos live there. And it's always been kind of a huge, you know, Republican Cuban area. But in recent years, there's been a huge influx of Colombians and Venezuelans. So it's pretty a pretty diverse Latino community at this point. And they have a monopoly, obviously, on, you know, a lot of the media in South Florida and a lot of the, especially the Spanish-speaking media and radio specifically. Uh, so it really, you know, a lot of what I was seeing on WhatsApp group chats is exactly what I was hearing on radio, paid programming, on, you know, reputable news sources and reputable radio stations that I grew up listening to that I know to be yeah reputable and well known in the area and some of the stuff that they were propagating was straight out of these you know QAnon conspiracy theory chat groups as well as different Facebook groups and you know Facebook news feed I see it regularly on my Facebook news feed at this point and hearing you know the the programming that's on a lot of these stations is very similar and it's you know it's everything from you know, criticizing Black Lives Matter as this satanic organization that is worse than the Nazis to, you know, Biden having a pedophilia problem uh, to, you know, as Daniel mentioned, save our children, you know, being on Facebook news feeds, Facebook group chats. It really goes hand in hand at this point. Um, and it's really coming out of, you know, not only the Cuban community, but especially the Colombian and Venezuelan diaspora that has you know, a very active presence on WhatsApp and a very active presence on Facebook. Why is uh, WhatsApp such a popular platform in these uh, Latin American communities? And we should also uh, mention that uh, WhatsApp, which is a messaging uh, app, is uh, owned by Facebook. 
Yeah, and I mean, we know that the root of a lot of problems with, with oversight on this is stemming from Facebook. So it's not a coincidence that, you know, it's going on in WhatsApp as well. Um, I mean, the main reason that it's so popular in Latin America is just the fact that, you know, you don't need to have a U.S. phone number to operate it. So if you wanted to have a group chat with your family in Colombia, with your family in Cuba or Argentina or wherever they are, you can all have a group chat with different phone numbers, different area codes, no issues. There's that aspect to it as well as, you know, in Latin America, iPhones are not as popular. I feel like here, you know, we use iMessage all the time amongst ourselves and our friends and stuff. It's not as common in Latin America. So it's usually a very easy way to communicate. I will say it's not only Latin Americans, it's really like immigrant communities. It's one of the easiest ways to stay in touch with your family. But obviously in Miami, having such a Latin American presence, we see it, you know, in that community. And then, you know, the added bonus that it's an encrypted app uh, and you can just send messages and, you know, not have to have privacy concerns and all of that kind of factors in as well. And we should also mention that independent of these conspiracy theories that are bouncing around WhatsApp, the uh, politicians and especially the Republican Party and the Donald Trump campaign have made an aggressive effort to reach out to these communities in South Florida through WhatsApp. You know, we've really seen it in this election cycle, especially, you know, obviously social media has grown in importance in the last 10 years. And we saw a lot of it in 2016. And, you know, English language conspiracy theories, I feel like we've been debunking them for a lot longer. And, you know, we've talked so much about QAnon this year, especially and since 2018. But in Spanish language, there hasn't been that level of coverage. And, you know, the Trump campaign and Republican organizations have really tried to capitalize on that when it comes to South Florida and, you know, really courting that Latino vote and not just Cubans that, like I've mentioned, you know, Colombians, Venezuelans, and trying to get that sweet spot of voters to, to come out. Like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, small margins are important in, in elections in Florida. So it's really been this perfect opportunity for the Republican Party of knowing that, you know, there's not that level of debunking in Spanish language media. Well, how have, have has the Biden campaign or uh, reputable Spanish language media outlets uh, done anything to debunk some of these claims that are going around? You know, they're starting to make a more concerted effort to do that, but it hasn't been that much in reality. You know, I, I've seen the response to this story in this past week of so many people saying, you know, wow, this is a huge issue and I didn't know about it or we weren't addressing it. And that's concerning. You know, the election is 45 days away and for there to not really be a big strategy on how to combat this disinformation is, is obviously worrisome regardless of your, your party affiliations. So there are a lot of Latino advocacy groups that have been trying to get their surrogates out there, get them on the radio waves in South Florida and talk about, you know, what is accurate information, what is disinformation that's out there and really explain to people, you know, you know, it's not to take an offense that you've been reading faulty information, but, you know, these are common things that you could be seeing on your news feed and you should know that they're not true. And it's really touching on that of, you know, making sure that people understand that CNNNN.com is not CNN.com and that, you know, these Noticias 24, you know, like um, Univision in South Florida is Channel 24 and being able to say, okay, that website is not real and this one is. And getting more people out there to spread that information and make that clear is sort of where we're at and seeing that. And, you know, the campaign with Biden's visit to Florida this week, I think that's part of him really making an effort. And, you know, he said 
uh, early this week, you know, the gloves are off and he's going to fight for every Latino vote. So I think this is going to be a big part of that. Daniel, Sabrina talked about the fact that we're seeing, you know, disinformation showing up in, in Spanish language media and among Spanish language users and social networks. That's maybe one way that disinformation campaigns are different in 2020 versus 2016. What other differences have you noticed this year? I've noticed a lot less focus on false news websites, uh, very like obvious instances of mis and disinformation and more um, narrative hijacking, memes on social media, things that are harder to attribute essentially. So most of the stuff that we at PolitiFact find ourselves debunking every single day are text posts from random people on Facebook. And it is really hard to attribute who that person is, if they're a real account, if they're a fake account. And these posts sound really basic, but they do get a lot of shares. Some of these text posts get shared, you know, 20,000, 40,000 times, uh, and they take about 30 seconds to create. That's very different from 2016, where we were seeing a plethora of false news websites disguised as, you know, CNN, Snopes, reputable news outlets publishing repurposed false and spammy content with the goal of misleading voters. This seems more targeted and tailored to very specific audiences. So people that consume memes on Instagram, um, people who consume videos on TikTok, even uh, people in WhatsApp groups like Sabrina talked about earlier. So I, I would say that now, 2020, four years later, social media platforms are more aware that this is a problem. But at the same time, mis and disinformers are also more aware that this is a problem and that people are paying attention to them. So they're trying to get around some of those, uh, those penalties that were put in place since 2016. Um, and they're developing some smart workarounds that effectively make it a lot harder for us to do our jobs. So what are Facebook, Twitter, YouTube doing to, to counter this misinformation? Yeah, so they have all taken uh, different steps and very piecemeal steps since 2016. It's kind of hard to keep track of all the different things that they've been doing. I would say, you know, from PolitiFact's perspective for Facebook specifically, we partner with Facebook to both find, identify pre-viral and viral content on the platform um, and then fact check it. And if we do fact check it as false, Facebook has agreed to limit the spread of that mis and disinformation in the newsfeed by up to 80%, I believe. Uh, it also sends notifications to users that share it and it appends a warning basically saying, hey, this is false information and here's a fact check to learn more. So that has been a really key thing that Facebook has done since 2016. You know, there's still questions about how effective that is. Um, is it actually uh, reaching all the mis and disinformation that's out there? You know, those are good valid questions, but I would say that is a big step forward for Facebook since 2016. I think also on the Facebook front, uh, they've gotten more serious about detecting um, what they call coordinated and authentic behavior, which is essentially disinformation networks. They've hired a bunch of intelligence analysts to look at these networks constantly and take them down before they grow to become really big. One example of that is about two, three weeks ago, Facebook took down a network of Russian-linked Facebook pages. Now, this is a small network, and they did this at the behest of the FBI, but they said in their report that this network, which was targeting Americans and actually recruiting freelance American journalists to write for a false website, was not big. It didn't have a big audience yet. So I think Facebook is very cognizant that, hey, we have to take down this stuff um, ahead of time. And lastly, I'll just speak about Twitter. I, I see Facebook and Twitter as the biggest players in this arena, frankly. Um, Twitter has taken fewer steps to address mis and disinformation. More recently, they have started appending uh, misleading labels or People call them fact checks, but they're not really fact checks. Labels to uh, the president's tweets, some other tweets 
um, that violate their policies against spreading misinformation about, you know, COVID-19, um, voting and elections. So those are more targeted actions they are more specifically tailored to different topics, which is also something Facebook has done, but I would say Twitter writ large has done less than Facebook to address mis and disinformation. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We're talking about disinformation surrounding the 2020 election with Daniel Funky, a writer with PolitiFact, and Sabrina Rodriguez, a reporter with Politico. We'll take a short break here and resume our conversation in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. We're talking about disinformation during this year's election with Daniel Funky, a writer at PolitiFact, and Sabrina Rodriguez, a reporter with Politico. Sabrina, where else are we seeing misinformation being spread? You know, in, in South Florida specifically, uh, you know, radio waves is an area that we're seeing it a lot. A lot of Spanish speakers get their information from various stations uh, in South Florida. And we've seen so much of it in this cycle of, you know, conspiracy theorists getting a platform to speak to, you know, the populations in South Florida. In Spanish language, we've actually seen a pretty big number of, of YouTube pages that have been growing and putting out conspiracy theories. And some of them are really masked as reputable sites and reputable sources of information. I think one of the most fascinating ones I found is called Informativo G24. And it was founded by a longtime Colombian news anchor that worked for reputable news sources. And now she has this YouTube site that she uses to, you know, bring on conspiracy theorists, people that are against globalization and, you know, do hour long newscasts about how messed up Black Lives Matter is and how it's actually this satanic group and, the same thing about, you know, how people aren't going to accept the election results and Trump, you know, has been an amazing president and, and really putting out, you know, opinion, but mixed as well with these conspiracy theories that's in a very gray area. And I think to Daniel's point, you know, it's more sophisticated than these just fake websites that are clearly putting out fake information. It's this commentary mixed with some conspiracy theories mixed with some false information where, when I was writing the story, it was like, okay, was well, this an example to be put in the story? Or is this really just an opinion? Or is this really, you know, as far as a conspiracy theory, there's, there's this gray area that's going around that makes it a lot harder to, to identify and really target. Yeah, and I guess also you have the kind of the, the, the added cachet of the fact that this Colombian news anchor is somebody who's, you know, known and trusted in this community. I guess it would be kind of akin to, you know, if, if Lester Holt or, or, or Anderson Cooper all of a sudden, you know, opened up one of these channels and started spewing all these conspiracy theories, people might be more willing to believe that person because of their reputation as a reputable journalist. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the guests, for example, that she's brought on frequently, who has also been on a lot of radio stations talking is uh, this man, his name's Omar uh, Bula Escobar, and he's a former United Nations representative. Like, that's a huge credential to have on his resume. And it's a fact. It's true. You know, you can look up his resume and you see it. And he's one of the people that's peddling these conspiracy theories. You know, he's gone on her show and he's gone on radio stations to talk about how you know, George Soros is the face of the Democratic Party and how, you know, if 
Trump loses, you know, the country's going to be run by Jews and black people and how, you know, we're going to be a communist country. And, and, you know, so it's really difficult if you talk to anyone, not just Spanish speakers, but if you talk to someone, they say, well, he's smart, he's educated, he's reputable. How, you know, how am I supposed to know that what he's saying isn't true? Uh, and why can't I believe, you know, his theories about this? So who's the audience for this Spanish language disinformation? Is it older people? Is it younger people? Is it both? It's definitely an older audience, for sure. You know, I think when we see now, you know, who's using Facebook the most and who's getting, you know, their news information from there, I would say it's it's older voters, especially in Spanish language. Um, and I think, you know, there's this perception, some strategists that I talked to, you know, refuted and don't go back and forth about it. But, you know, on WhatsApp groups, a lot of the people that are sharing the disinformation is the older aunt, the abuela, the, you know, the older family member that's getting this information and that's kind of left on the younger Latino family member to say, okay, no, that's not true. And I, on a personal level, have dealt with that of having to say like that link that you just sent is literally not real. Like that is not true. So it's, it's really been, you know, targeting older voters and getting people like, you know, that, that example I give of the longtime anchor in Colombia, you know, she's been on air for years and, an older audience knows her, trusts her, and is going to take her word for it when she's talking about certain things. So we're seeing it in that sense, as well as, you know, the radio waves. Not as many people are listening to the radio today as they were, you know, 20 years ago. And in South Florida, you know, a lot of these hosts on these shows have gained the trust of families and, and aging populations in South Florida. So if you hear your longtime radio host telling you, you know, I brought this guy on my show and he's really a great guy and you got to trust him and listen to him, you're more likely to do it. So we really are seeing it, especially with older Latinos. Daniel, Sabrina's talked a lot about the targeting of uh, Latinos in South Florida. Have we seen anything similar among Latinos or other communities or just voters in general in, in the Tampa Bay region? Yeah, I would say uh, it's tough to say at this point. Still, it feels like it's late in the election cycle, but a lot of mis- and disinformation news actually, if you remember back to 2016, seeped out very slowly into 2017, 2018. So I, I expect it'll be a while um, until we really fully recognize uh, the extent to which mis- and disinformation is targeting different communities. Now that said, I think um, what the Save Our Children, Save the Children debacle kind of shows is that mis- and disinformers are trying to pivot their false messages to as broad an audience as they can. The genius of the phrase, uh, save the children, is that no one is going to say that as an unworthy cause. So essentially, that appeals to pretty much anybody in the Tampa Bay region. If you are against child sex trafficking, on paper, you should be sharing save our children and save the children, which is part of the problem that we have had as fact checkers is explaining to people that it is okay to be against something like that, but it is not okay to subscribe to this false conspiracy theory. Uh, and I would say that's another difference between 2016 and now is, you know, in 2016, it was very highly partisan mis- and disinformation, which is still kind of the case. But now you have these gray areas where you have liberals and Trump supporters all coming together to protest against something like child sex trafficking, which is actually linked to QAnon. Um, so, you know, it's tough to say to what extent people in Tampa Bay are falling for this stuff and to what extent they're directly targeted by it. But I think it is definitely safe to say that everyone's targeted by some form of mis- and disinformation, and it's probably aimed at both sides. So you, you mentioned at the, at the top of the show some of these um, congressional candidates, Republican congressional candidates who are, who are QAnon supporters here in Florida. We have Laura Loomer, who's a, a longtime sort of conservative gadfly who's well known in, in, uh, in conservative circles, who won 
the Republican nomination in the South Florida district against Democrat Lois Frankel. That's considered a long shot there because it is an overwhelmingly Democratic district. But in Georgia, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who won the Republican primary in a very conservative, rural, uh, GOP-leaning district and is all but guaranteed a seat in Congress after November. What happens when somebody who believes these conspiracy theories is in a seat of power, right? It's one thing to talk about it in a campaign context, but it's another thing when you're a sitting member of Congress. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's something I and a lot of other fact checkers have thought about recently, especially considering that some of these candidates, like you said, are probably going to win their elections. Um, You have kind of seen something interesting happen where the Republican Party, some leaders have come out pretty fiercely denouncing QAnon, but at the same time, a lot of members have remained silent on it or even dog whistled the, the conspiracy theory at times. So I think when and if these QAnon supporters are elected to Congress, there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning within the Republican Party where they decide what to do with this. It's not really a problem that's going away. I don't think they can ignore it forever. I think at some point they're going to either have to take a hard line against QAnon in the party or they're going to just have to roll with it, uh, incorporate those members into their caucus, which I could think I would think is pretty dangerous um, to incorporate those false claims into the party. But I think at some point next year, if and when these supporters do win, they're going to have to reckon with that. Sabrina, what's your your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with what Daniel's saying. I think it remains to be seen. You know, we're seeing more congressional races across the country, gubernatorial races, state legislative races, where QAnon, there are candidates supporting QAnon, and they very well may win. And this is going to be a part of our politics and our reality for a while. So, you know, I think the way that Facebook and Twitter has had to adjust to disinformation is going to be something, you know, we're all going to have to to adjust to and figure out how to navigate them. And I think on Capitol Hill, they're going to have to do the same. Daniel, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of this interview, you know, there's always been disinformation of some kind. Conspiracy theories have been a part of American life forever, but they seem to take on a different sort of different sort of weight now because of the power of social media. So what's the solution to keep this kind of disinformation and, and conspiracy theories, manipulation of videos? Wh- what do you think is the right path to keep things like that from spreading? I wish I had a, a silver bullet for you, Bradley, but unfortunately I do not. I would say, having been in working in this space for the past several years, the things that appear to work the best are solutions that are multi-stakeholder in their approach. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, not just the tech platforms removing stuff uh, whenever they want uh, without any kind of transparency or guidelines. Also, not just fact checkers or journalists pointing out disinformation endlessly Um, without any action from tech platforms. I think the best solutions that I've seen um, incorporate those two stakeholders in addition to others, you know, nonprofit groups um, in the government in some instances uh, to kind of address the problem together. So I mentioned that, you know, PolitiFact partners with Facebook to remove or flag false information and add more context. I think that's to me, and I'm biased because I work for PolitiFact, one of the best solutions that I've seen. Uh, you know, we have reduced the spread of mis- and disinformation, I, I believe. Um, I think more research is needed there. But, you know, I think partnerships like that are really smart because they bring together, you know, the people that know this best, which is journalists and fact checkers, and the people that can actually limit the spread of mis- and disinformation, which is tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter. 
That was Daniel Funky, a reporter for PolitiFact. We also heard from Politico reporter Sabrina Rodriguez. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. This is great. Today's show was produced by Denora Prevost. And if you missed part of the conversation or want to listen again, you can find it at WUSFnews.org. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters. Hope you'll join us again next week.